Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first six verses of this chapter today and um, uh, taking some time to walk through this passage. But let me take a second before we read the scriptures this morning and, and think about where we are in the book of Galatians. Sometimes because of expository preaching, because of the manner that we uh, use where we take a passage and we unpack a package, uh, a, a portion of the uh, scriptures week by week, it's easy to lose sight of the big picture. You know, I, I like to, I love to hunt, and uh, I, I love to be in the woods, and I have this place up in Georgia that a friend of mine has given me permission to hunt, <clears throat> and I love to, I love to, I know where my tree stands are, I, I you know, I've got the paths, the trails uh, marked out, and, and I can get into those uh, places quietly and in the dark, and uh, no problems to navigate my way in the woods without a light or anything else. But every now and then, it's really good for me to take out uh, my uh, telephone and pull up Google Maps and take the, get the big picture of the woods in which I am hunting to remember where the creek is and to remember what kind of trees are over here and what kind of trees are over there. So this morning, I kind of want to do that for us. I want us to think about where we are in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5 is, um, is a marker, I guess, in some ways, of a little bit of a, a transition place in the book of Galatians. In the first two chapters, chapters 1 and 2, Paul has defended the fact that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. That as an apostle of Christ, Paul had the right to talk to the Galatians about what they were believing and to define for them the gospel. And so Paul does that in chapters 1 and 2. And, and in truth, Paul had been the church planner. He was the one who had led many of these people to faith in Christ. He had been the man on the ground who developed the small group, who became a church, who um, became the Galatian churches, a series of churches there throughout Pontus and Galatia. Chapters 3 and 4, Paul lays out the theological foundations for the gospel that he preached. He says, I have the authority to preach. Here is the theological basis of what I preach and teach. Here is the doctrine that stands behind that. And now in chapters 5 and 6, Paul wants to take the doctrine that he has laid out and he wants to help the Galatian church understand that doctrine's implications. Last week, David did a great job talking about the fact that we are free in Christ that, that our freedom comes only from being in Christ. That we are who we were created to be because we are in Jesus Christ. And that's important for you to understand. So Paul's addressing in chapter 5 and 6 what difference it makes if we really are born again. If we really are free. If Christ has set us free, what difference does it make in your interpersonal relationships? What difference does it make in, in your ethics and in your values and in the things you do at work and, and the things that happen in your family? What difference does it make? Paul's basically saying that our faith, and he begins that uh, idea here in chapter 5, our faith is more than just a me and Jesus kind of a faith. Okay, you know what I mean by that? It's, it's, it's more than just 
okay, I've trusted Jesus and I have my, my life insurance policy here in my pocket and I'm good to go, heaven set, I don't have to worry about anything else and I'm not worried about relationships or how the, the gospel impacts me in life or anywhere else. G, you know, it's just me and Jesus. Paul says, he takes the Galatians to task. He, he basically says, this is how new life in Christ works itself out. This is how your faith impacts the community of the church. This is how your faith in Christ works itself out in the networks of, of relationships that we as individuals and we as a corporate body have all over the city of Galatia, all over Lake County, if you will. Paul's talking about a corporate kind of thing here. Uh, and, and if that wasn't enough, in these last two chapters, Paul kind of begins to flip our thinking about what living a good life is all about. He kind of turns that on its head. <clears throat> um, and uh, he, he kind of goes from preaching to meddling in some real ways. I mean, I mean, he calls us to be brutally honest about what's going on inside our hearts and our minds. I mean, like, don't hold back. Think about what's going on. If the truth's told, that's not something you and I naturally want to do. And, and in fact, it's pretty unflattering when we are honest, isn't it, about what really is dwelling in our hearts and in our minds. You probably don't want to see the realities of my sinful heart. And I really probably don't want to see yours either. I mean, let's just be real. The, the, the darkness of our hearts is, a, is an ugly thing sometimes. Paul says that Christ has set us free. Here's how we work. On one hand, we convinc we're convinced. We're performing our religious duties. We're doing the things that we know we ought to do, and we're doing them pretty well. You know, we, we carry out our moral duty. Just look at us. I mean, here we are. We're gathered together in worship. We're pretty good folks. You know, we clean up pretty good. We, we look pretty nice. We, we can behave ourselves when we're together uh, for worship. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're pretty regular people. Um, if you thought about your neighbors, did you think about your neighbors on the way to church this morning? Did you look around your neighborhood as you were driving to church this morning and think about your neighbors? I, I don't know. Uh, maybe you don't do this, but, but you know, you see your neighbor and, and uh, he's throwing the golf clubs in the back of uh, his car and he's about to head off to play golf or, um, you know, somebody's cutting the grass and, and, you know, they're not going to worship today and you think to yourself, well, I'm not playing golf. I, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not working in the yard. I, I'm going to worship. I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, you know, I'm doing my bit. We can look pretty good. We, we compare ourselves all the time. One of my neighbors was out walking his dog this morning as uh, we were going to church. Remember that? Wasn't a void. Um, but at any rate, uh, Monday, I was, uh, I was cutting the grass. I cut the grass at the house Monday morning. Had to cut it early because we were going to have rain, and even though it was wet and everything else. But I found myself, I was riding the lawnmower. I was in the backyard, and, and I was buzzing around the yard, and, and uh, I cut my yard at, as fast as the mower will go because I just hate cutting grass. I mean, so I just wide open, just. <clears throat> but, and it's a good time to think. 
I come up with all kinds of great things, great thoughts while I'm cutting my grass because my mind is checked out, you know, and I'm just, I'm going to get this done. I'm gonna, and I look across the fence at my neighbor's yard and I think, oh, he's got, oh, his yard, that, that looks pretty, oh, he's got some pretty exotic weeds over there, you know. And if the truth were told, the only reason I'm cutting my grass uh, on Monday morning is because if I didn't cut my weeds, I would only have a sandlot, okay? My yard is really no better than his yard, but, you know, but I look across behind me and, and I think, wow, he's got some, he's got some pretty exotic uh, weeds over there, and, he, you know, he doesn't trim around the fence, and he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, trim around that trampoline, and, you know, he has those branches laying down there in the yard. He needs to keep better care of his yard. And I start comparing myself to him, and after a minute, I'm looking pretty good. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not going to get yard of the month, but I don't look too bad. You realize, spiritually, that kind of attitude is proof positive that we're in denial. You realize what that means is a telltale sign that you're not being honest about who you really are. Silly illustration, but it's true. And there's a flip side to that illustration too if you think about it you know the flip side is we can live such defeated lives that we're convinced that things will never change or that we can't change and that we are captive to hopelessness you know if i go back to the illustration my neighbor could just think what's the point i'm gonna have sand spurs and lantana and palmettos popping up in my yard no matter what I do. There's, what's the point? Why bother with cutting the grass? It's just going to come up anyway. It's going to be ugly weeds. It doesn't matter. Why should I bother? We do the same thing spiritually. We grow despair. Uh, we, we have defeated lives. We're hopeless. We live in denial. And to do that is also to live under the yoke of slavery. True spiritual growth personally and corporately doesn't occur by our fleshly energies. That's what Paul is trying to help the Galatian church understand. And you know what? It's something we still need to learn. It's something we need to grow in. The gospel brings change to us, but change only occurs by faith, by remembering who you are in Christ by remembering that God is your Father who calls you into an ever-deepening realization of His grace and His mercy. True spiritual growth doesn't occur as a do-it-yourself project. The gospel frees your conscience from constantly, incessantly checking your own performance and, and weighing it against the weight of others' performances. Quit looking around and comparing yourself to your neighbor's spiritual growth. Compare yourself to Jesus. Look to Jesus. You don't have to live up to others' false ideas and unrealistic expectations about righteousness. You need to do it this way or you're not really a Christian. You know, early on in our college careers, Ann and I both were new believers and there was a lot of that kind of a legalistic view of, 
of Christianity that, that we found impacted us in ways we never even realized or, or understood until later on in our married lives. We realized suddenly that some of the things and principles that we had based our, our faith on were, were really transactional Christianity, legalistic views of the Scriptures. Hey, Luther understood that. That's what sparked the Reformation. Well, with that in mind, I'm going to ask that uh, you stand up if you're able this morning as we read Galatians chapter 5. And as you hear Galatians 5, 1 to 6, remember that this is the inerrant, infallible, inspired, and sufficient word of God for us this morning. Let us give attention to the reading and hearing of the scriptures. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I ask you this day to take the word and to bring it to our hearts in such a way that we can see Jesus and we can see ourselves and we can see our need for you. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to the gospel this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I've only got two points this morning. I didn't do uh, slides and uh, did JT do slides for me? Oh, well, very good. I have two points. First point, falling from grace. We're going to talk about that for just a minute this morning, for just a few minutes this morning. So I want you to use your imagination, okay? Imagine in your, in your heart and in your minds, we're going to go, we're going to enter into a time capsule for just a second. Imagine that it's January, that it's actually January of 1863. Okay, okay. Think about your American history, what was going on in January of 1863. There was something big that happened then. You remember what it was? The Emancipation Proclamation. You were living in slavery in the Confederacy, January 1863. And you've just learned, you've just heard about Lincoln's executive order. And Lincoln has declared that you are free. But you decide... I'm not going to believe that. I don't, I don't believe that. And, and, and I'm going to continue to live as a slave even though you have been legally freed by Lincoln's declaration, by his proclamation. You're living as you were taught to live instead of according to your new status. You would effectively have revoked your own emancipation. Right? 
We look at that and we look at someone who did that and we know that happened after Lincoln's Emancipation Declaration in 1863. We know that there were some slaves who did that. Denied, basically, that they had been set free. What are they doing? Well, they're deceiving themselves about who they are, about what they are, and they are continuing to live under the law. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul is concerned that the Galatians' actions basically amount to rejecting their emancipation. In fact, if you look at Paul's words in the Greek, Paul says, he says, look, he, he, says, he says effectively, wake up. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That's verses 2 and 4. Circumcision and everything like it belonging uh, to circumcision and belonging to the law is like the pedagogue. It, it, is like, it is like living under a tutor who is in charge of your life. It is, it is as if you are uh, under the control of someone else. You're, you're not under the dominion, the domain of sonship. To return to circumcision, to return to the law, to return to the slavery that you once endured under the Old Testament law is to deny what has been done for you on the cross. That's how grave Paul viewed what the Galatians were wrestling with. They were wanting to go back to legalism. All right, we've talked a lot about legalism. We've, we've talked about returning to legalism, returning to the law, and that kind of... What, let's just get a quick definition of legalism. What is legalism, okay? Legalism is treating that which is good as though it is essential, okay? Here's how it works. Here's, here's how we make that happen. Uh, whenever Christians turn something valuable into something ultimate, legalism is at work. You know, we... we, we we, we get things out of, out of kilter that way. Um, we preserve our freedom in Christ when what is essential to God is essential to us and everything else is kept in its place. What, I, defining legalism is basically, I hate to use this illustration because it's been misused in evangelism, but when we take God off the seated throne of ruling our lives, and we put anything else in that place, in God's place, we're, we're, we're serving idols. We're serving false gods. Sometimes we put ourselves there, our own needs, our own feelings, our own whatevers. We, we do that in so many different ways. But legalism lurks in the corner of every believer's heart. We, I, I uh, led a group of folks... Um, in my uh, very first ordained position uh, through a discipleship ministry. And it was a great ministry. And uh, we uh, memorized scripture together and we prayed together and, and we uh, studied together and we talked about what it meant to grow as a believer in Christ. And, and uh, we held each other accountable for having regular times in the Word of God. And one of the tools that we used in that process was... Um, uh, we had everyone commit to having 21 consecutive days of quiet time, of time where they would sit, sit aside and where they would study the Word and where they would pray for 21 consecutive days. 
And if you got to day 19 and you stumbled and didn't have your quiet time, you had to start all over again and do another 21 days. That's kind of a form of legalism. We took a good thing and we made it into the ultimate thing and we hammered others who couldn't succeed in disciplining themselves well enough to have a regular quiet time into a remedial state of submission, you know? It was horrible. I had my 21 days, by the way. Okay, I just... I didn't have to repeat, is what I'm saying. I had an advantage. I think uh, we can turn good things into ultimate things. And then we get them out of place. The Judaizers, the agitators, sought to convince the Galatian Christians that circumcision is what ultimately counts. You've got to keep this part of the law to be really a believer. To really show that you're sincere, that you're real, that your faith is genuine. And if you don't do that, then, then you know, you're a little questionable. Unless you're circumcised according to the book of, or to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved is the way they frame their argument. And you can read that in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. They, they said, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. Paul says, no, that is not the ultimate thing. David talked about last week our freedom in Christ. You know, we don't seek our salvation by keeping, by, by law keeping, by, by the old covenant. We don't entangle ourselves in bondage. We are free in Jesus Christ. But Paul basically warns the Galatians about a the danger of mixing grace and works together. <clears throat> Sometimes when you're reading the scriptures, it's it's easy to, to not get the to not make the transition from the then to the now. We don't struggle with circumcision being a rite of passage to be a, a Christian uh, in our day and society. Circumcision is of no uh, consequence one way or the other in our society today. But what do we use in place of that? How do we do it? How do we do the same thing that the Galatians do um, in, in other ways? You know, are there other ways that we, we hold values like that? Are there other ways that, that Paul would, would speak to us and maybe not say circumcision, but, but say something that we do as believers in Christ, that we must do to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ? How do, what, are, what are our rules as modern-day Christians? Is it that you have to be a Republican? I mean, some places you would think that was the truth, wouldn't you? Or is it that you have to, uh, um, I don't know, come up with something? Yeah, go to church. Is it, is it that you have to go to church? Is it that you have to uh, participate in the small group to really be a real believer in Jesus Christ? Or, or is, do we, we have those other laws, don't we? We have those expectations that we put on others. I mean, think about it. What are, what, are the, what are the rules that we have? Well, you don't smoke, you don't chew tobacco, you don't go with girls that chew tobacco. You know, 
You don't dance. You don't listen to rap music. You don't. What, what, what are the rules that we have? I, Paul, say to you that if you accept, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who keeps or accepts blank, fill in the blank, he is obligated to keep the whole law. What's the modern day equivalent? I don't know. Maybe for you it's different. Maybe it's something you, you, you hold to differently. You see, Paul's understood our hearts. He understood that we really are idol-making factories, that we, that we create things that we want to worship. We create things that take God's place of importance and ultimate rule in our lives, and we put them up. Self-esteem, respect, financial security. What, what, what are the things that come into your life? That, that, what, what are the things that you pursue? You know, is it, is it your standing in the community? Is it your, 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 the, the beauty of your, your front yard? I mean, it could be any. We can, the problem with idolatry is we can make anything into an idol. And we do it so quickly and so easily. The net effect is if we do that, we've stopped trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. We've denied what Luther gave his life for. Sola Christos. Sola Fide. Sola Gratia. Sola Scriptura. Soli Deo Glory. We've denied giving God his right place. We, when we quit asking ourselves the question, will this thing bring glory to God or not? We have failed. And we've put another idol in God's place. Look, I do it. I've done it over and over and over again. I feel like a, a babe in Christ sometimes because I go back to the same struggles I've had all along. And it boils down to this. Does my life bring glory to God? Does this action bring glory to God or not? And if it doesn't, it needs repentance. I'm in that spot right now. I'll bet you are too. I'll bet you are. Paul uses the term grace in the text as an equivalent of salvation. He, he, he doesn't mean that, that a truly converted person would lose his salvation. Paul is asserting the spiritual truth that you can't mingle grace and works. You can't mix the two uh, ideas. We, we don't do things to keep ourselves in the faith. He's asserting that spiritual truth, the spiritual truth that grace and works don't, they're oil and water. To step one toe, to put one millimeter over the line of grace into the realm of human endeavor destroys the principle of grace. Quit doing it. Start resting in it. I think is what Paul is saying here. Put anything else there. Good works, great family, finances, being holy, Moral assets, anything that you think would gain God's approval. Look, 
God will never be your debtor. You need to learn that. You need to remember that. He will never, ne- never make, try to make God your debtor. That was what was going on with the indulgences in Paul's day. I mean, in uh, uh, Luther's day, wasn't it? They were granting this, you know, you could drop the coin in the coffer and uh, you could uh, buy that indulgence and you could just bypass the gospel by your monetary gifts. And people still try to do that today with their offerings. Still happens. We're more sophisticated than that, though. We have other ways that we do that. The reality is there's nothing we can do to make God love us more than he already does. You think, do you realize there is nothing that you can do that will make God love you more than he already does. There is nothing that you can do if you're a believer in Christ that will make God love you any less than he does either. Sin will not make God love you less. Your Savior went to the cross and bore all of your sin. He went to the cross knowing your sin. Not just the ones you've already done, but the ones you hadn't done yet. And he died for you. Only out of his grace, only out of his mercy, if we're genuinely saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, there is nothing that will separate us from his love. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor any created thing can separate you from the love of Christ, or the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. It is all of grace. Let me give you a little illustration. Make my point. I guess this was gardening week in my thinking. All right, I've got to admit this to you this morning. This is unusual for me. I I, I usually can sleep straight through the night, no problems. (coughs) But um, I've been waking up at like 3 o'clock in the morning and um, not been able to go back to sleep. And so I lay there for a little while, you know, and toss and turn, flip and flop, and drive Ann crazy, I know. And uh, so after maybe an hour of tormenting Ann, uh, I get up and uh, go to my office, and I'll go sit at my desk. And so I've written this sermon between the hours of like 3 a.m. and 6 or 7 uh, a.m. Okay, that's unusual for me. So maybe that's where all the gardening analogies have come from this time. But just imagine this morning that... <coughs> that that you're a, you're, a, you're a Christian man, okay, and that you're also a successful gardener. I long to be a successful gardener. I can kill anything, and, I, and my yard is proof of that. But, but you move into a new house, okay? And after you move into the house, uh, you realize, before you buy it probably, that the, the landscaping is beastly, that it's awful. But as you, as you take possession of the house and you go out in the yard and you begin to work, you realize that the, the soil is rocky, that it's hard-packed, that, it's, that the, the flower beds are dilapidated, that everything is just utter chaos, that it's just terrible. You know, that it looks like the sign out on the street out here that needs flowers in the, in the little bed around the sign. 
It just looks awful. It's full of ants. It's full of, you know, it's just a mess. And so you set to work. You think, I'm going to fix this. And so you, 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 you get out in the yard and you toil and you labor constantly day after day. You, you, you till the, the ground up, you throw in uh, compost and you fertilize and you put some plants in. and You throw some rocks out of, the, out of the soil and every time you pick up a rock and move it out of the way, you go in your own heart, oh, I want to have to move that one again. And, you know, that's the last time I've got to do that. And every season, every year is... Time goes on, things get better and better and better in your flower bed and in your yard, and finally the day comes when the Neighborhood Homeowners Association plants the <laughs> yard of the month sign in your front yard. Life's good. I have worked hard for that goal, and I have made it. bit by bit, stone at a time. So, again, you set yourself to work. You discipline yourself so that you're rather accomplished in your devotional life and so that your church participation improves and so that you are able to give more and more to uh, the Lord and to charitable giving and, and you become an honored citizen in our society and in our community and, and everything seems as it should and, and all of it appears on the outside as being a good thing. But there have been some difficulties along the way. You know, you hadn't gotten along with your neighbor or been one problem or another. But uh, so no, you know, they just those they have their own issues. So, you know, they're just they haven't worked at it. They're not like me. They're not, you know. One day you're diagnosed with cancer. And you consider all your efforts and the, the in your frustration you grow angry and you grow bitter toward God. You'd till the soil of your life. You'd certainly uh, deserved a different outcome than cancer. I mean, sh shouldn't life be more like a bed of roses? Not cancer. And so as you're sitting in the hospital, you're receiving chemotherapy, and you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 20. And you read the parable of the, 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 parable of the uh, workers in the vineyard, the laborers in the vineyard, and and you think, well, this will, this will be good. I'll, I can relate to this. These guys are working in a big garden, a big vineyard, and, and I appreciate that. And your heart is opened by the Spirit as you read these words. These last men have worked only one hour, and you, should have, made, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. And suddenly, you have one of those aha moments where the radical honesty pours into your heart. Oh yeah, you'd been a diligent gardener, you'd, but you'd miss the big rock. You'd miss the, the obvious rock of your own pride that showed up in your life. A lack of patience, a lack of empathy, a lack of love, a lack of grace. You see, sin and the law have a wage that they pay. They do, they do pay wages, but the kingdom's currency, Jesus' currency, is the currency of grace. Most of us are, are used to 
the, the, the thing that we've been taught all of our lives is, is if you're diligent, if you apply more elbow grease, then you will get the job done. You will accomplish the task. You will do uh, the right thing. You'll get there. There's, there's, you, you've got to you know, press on, and, and we pride ourselves in our ability to overcome obstacles. We work at that. We apply our elbow grease, and we think that's determination and fortitude and elbow grease are what we need. And there's something to be said for that. There is. That is a good attribute to be a diligent laborer. But sometimes the truth is counterintuitive. Sometimes merely trying harder doesn't make you holier. Sometimes God calls us to rest in Him. I mean, it, it, it can make you holier than thou. But sometimes it doesn't promote faith and dependence in Jesus because we're depending on ourselves. We're depending on our efforts. We're trying harder and it doesn't make us love God more. We replace Jesus with our efforts as the object of our faith. Christian, where are you in that process? I don't want you to be slackers as disciples of Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, are you depending on yourself? Are you resting in Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel? Are you resting in your own ability to know more, to study more theology, to read more in your Bible every day, to not miss a day having your quiet time for 21 consecutive days? Or are you loving Jesus and loving his people well? You see, the, I think the opposite of faith isn't unbelief. We all believe something our, and, and live our lives in light of it. The opposite of faith is self-reliance. <clears throat> Trying to get dividends from God by self-effort. You remember Paul's words to Romans, to the Romans in Romans chapter 8? I love these words. I quote these words to you frequently. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you know what the rest of the passage says? Do you remember that? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Living according to the Spirit means living by faith. The Spirit enables us to live by faith, Paul says here, not by living in fleshly energy, not by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Jesus' works can't be mixed with some of our own. Not for justification, not for sanctification. It is resting in Christ alone. Maybe another way to explain this is kind of like this. Quick illustration. 
I have a um, a signed um, print in my office. It was the um, federal duck stamp from uh, nineteen. Let's see, nineteen eighty six, I believe, maybe eighty seven. The artist who painted the painting that became the federal duck stamp that every duck hunter has to buy uh, so that he can legally uh, shoot uh, ducks that year. Uh, it's a big contest for the artist to create the, the, the painting that gets accepted and gets turned into the stamp that everybody buys. And I have a print of the original, okay? It's signed and it's numbered, and, uh, but it's been on my wall since 1986. And it's a little faded, but I've decided I'm going to sell that print uh, because I've been looking at it since 1986. And, and so uh, I decided that I would take it out of the frame and, and out of the glass. And um, it's, it's been museum uh, um, framed and everything else. And, but it's, it's still faded. And I thought I would take a Sharpie and that I would just go around the signature a little bit and darken it up. What have I done? We do the same thing. When we add to what Jesus has done, it's that simple. I put my Sharpie away. I'm not selling my print. I'm going to keep it. In so many ways, much of what passes for discipleship and spirituality is little Sharpie marks. You see how silly that is? Returning to circumcision for the Galatians or whatever the equivalent is in your life is like saying, hey, give me the rule book and just watch me go. I'll do it. Come back in a few days. Give me an exam. I'm ready. One last point. Verses 5 and 6. Paul offers two grounds to prove um, that seeking acceptance with God through circumcision through our own efforts through do-it-yourself christianity if you will uh, won't work he lays out <clears throat> he, he lays out the great hope of life specifically the hope of righteousness i wish i had more time this morning and <clears throat> uh, i want to i want to cover this a little bit this morning is the hope of our standing before god the hope of righteousness we look forward to that day when we will be made perfect in Jesus. Do you hope for that day? Do you want to be like Christ? We, the word hope Paul is using here is he's expressing confidence, a confidence that comes from the imputed righteousness of Christ. Jesus sacrifice for my sin has been given to me it is covered over my unrighteousness i wear it it covers me completely i am no longer standing outside of his grace i'm not depending on my own performance i'm not depending on my own ability his sinlessness sinlessness has covered my sin Judaizers were calling for faith plus works. Christ calls us for faith. Paul says that gives us the hope of righteousness. He, he contrasts himself with, and, and all true believers, with that system. He says that the hope of all true believers arises from faith and from faith alone. That's the gospel that our community needs to hear. 
That's what changes lives, is trusting Christ alone. That's what brings about reformation. That's what brings about genuine revival. That's a confidence that's spirit-bred. Paul says the same thing in Philippians. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And he lists his pedigree. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Think about that. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, he rejects every other basis of acceptance except for Christ alone. Reformation Sunday. 500 years ago, Luther pinned the 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. And we are still profiting from the faith alone, Scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, glory of God alone that Luther sought to bring to the church. And don't let this idea slip past you either. The nature of faith is receptive. Paul says through the Spirit that we have a faith that waits for the hope of righteousness. Not a faith that works, but that hopes, that waits. Faith takes hold of the promises of God and rests in those alone. Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Oh. What's, what's that that ultimately counts? What is it that ultimately counts for the glory of God? What is it that ultimately counts for your salvation? Faith working through love. Why do you do works? Why do you want to do things? Because you've experienced the love of Christ and you want to reflect the love of Christ. Not because you're trying to merit the love of Christ. Those are good things for us. That's the message that we need to bring to the world. It's not by keeping the rules. It's not by doing the stuff. It's by faith. It's by resting in Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. I think Paul's echoing James here, by the way. Or maybe James is echoing Paul, I think. I don't know. James was written before Paul wrote Galatians, I think. I'll have to think about that one. Paul's focus is that we would rest in Christ alone. That faith would work itself out in life. Let's let that be the mark of reformation in our lives today. Let's pray. Father, I ask you this day, that you would indeed continue that work which you have begun in us, that we might be transformed by our faith in Christ, that we would love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and, Father, that we would quit trying to add to that which you have given. Help us to understand 
the beauty, the enormity, the immensity of what grace is really all about. Help us to live in light of that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.